I, I remember him like actually really communicating with the engineer. You know, I mean, and and he, he was never at the board. I mean, he, he was never there, but like he was communicating with, with the engineer and um, telling him, you know, what he wanted certain instruments to sound like, you know, because the song we came in with when we worked with him was completely different than what we came out with, you know. I mean, and he, I mean, my favorite thing I like to say about that is he turned the Vortoids into a pop band. Which <laughs> you know, I don't know. That, that's a uh, that's a giant wall to climb. You were all kind of young, snotty punks at the time. Was there pushback on that idea? With him, no. It was weird. With anybody else, it might have. And with Godover, it was for sure. You know, but with him, um, no, it, it wasn't because of his approach. And I mean, he even changed, you know, guitar parts. And I mean you know, the essence of the song. I mean, and we didn't seem to mind because we realized it was better. Elvis Costello produced uh, Tempted by Squeeze and apparently it was just like an entirely different song. He suggested they, they do it in a Motown style and then, you know, rockets up the chart. It's, it's kind of wild. And, and I think one of the most useful things that a producer can do and is, is sort of being being that, that outside voice, you know, being somebody who is like not, it's like anything else in this world. You know, if you're, you're immersed in something all day. You're in this band all day. You have certain ideas about the way certain things should go. And then somebody comes in from the outside and it's like, oh yeah, I don't, that's something that we didn't even, even try or think of. Mm-hmm. And usually there's pushback with that because, because the band goes, well, no, this is our song. I mean, and we had pushback, you know, when we we're making Black Generation as well. I mean, and it's a good thing we pushed back because a lot of the ideas that were presented to us weren't good. I mean, but with Nick has that thing where, I mean, and a lot of great producers do that he's talented and knowing what should sound right. And he knows how to present it without alienating anyone. Was he brought in by the label? Well, not Sire Records. No, because at the time we got kicked off Sire Records. <laughs> so um, uh, Jake Riviera, um, Elvis Costello's manager, had a, 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 um, a label and he brought Nick in, you know, uh, Jake Riviera brought Nick in to produce a single. So, yes, uh, they did, uh, yeah, he did do that. Yeah. When you say he was kind of a mentor and, and, and taught you a lot through that process of recording, I think that song may be a B-side. What were some of the lessons you learned that you took with you? How to be a producer without being authoritarian. And how to... Um, Listen to a song and see that there's there's possibilities um, to change it completely um, and make and have it sound better and being able to communicate with the engineer. I mean, I engineer myself because I have I have a recording studio, but I mean, it's like I mean, I never saw Nick sit down at the board. He was just like constantly telling the engineer, "Well, this, that, you know," and I want the CQ and that EQ. Yeah, I mean, and those things. But most importantly, it's the vibe in the studio because, I mean, you're in this, like, you know, this this um, space, <clears throat> this isolated space with just, um, you know, the band and whomever, and you're there for hours and hours and hours. And it's very easy for the mood to turn sour, you know, especially if you, if you have more than one person. And even with one person, it can turn sour, you know. So, I mean, that was the, that was the biggest lesson. It's like, you know, just how to like, cajole, cajole everybody to, like, go, okay, we're here to make the record. Let's do this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Richard's one of the, I think the five or six people I mentioned that you've worked with that I've had on the show and he could be difficult. I feel like I was getting a little bit of that in, in the interview maybe. And like, 
when working with artists in a studio like that, and when you are that kind of like outside force, you've got to be really mindful of the fact that a lot of people are, a lot of musicians are very understandably attached to their vision. Yes. I mean, I, I can't remember right now who produced um, Metallica's Black Album, you know, but that was the story with that. I mean, I, you, you, you know who did that? I, I can't remember. I have to go look at my shop. But that was the story with that because he came in with all these ideas and they're like, you can't tell us what to do, you know? And gradually the mood softened and then he got his his thing across and then they had an amazingly great album. But I mean, it happens a lot. Especially like first records, I assume, you know, coming in. Like you've never done this before. You've never been through this process before, but you assume that you know everything about it. Yeah, because you've written the songs and you've, you know, formed the band, whatever. Excuse me. Yeah. You've got a studio in uh, in Williamsburg. I kind of get the impression, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that's, that production, or at least that sort of like being in and managing the studio is what takes up most of your time these days. <laughs> I ran there from, from there to here today. So yeah, it does. It does. I mean, it, also because it's an analog studio, I mean, and it's kind of a carousel of things being broken. And, and that's another thing I've learned is how to repair gear. So I mean... And that, and you know, it's it's fairly busy right now. So I mean, yeah, it does take up a lot of my time. I, I mean, but I'm, yeah. That's rare to have a fully or even like mostly analog studio at this point. So obviously, it's a lot easier to produce things on a computer. But you know, and and there, there's an argument to be made for warmth and sound and things like that. But you just don't, you just don't come across too many analog studios in 2022. Well, no one can afford it. No, no one can afford the maintenance. I mean, because the maintenance, I mean, luckily I can fix it myself. That's the only reason it exists. Otherwise, you know, we'd be sending things out all the time, check costing four or five hundred thousand dollars, four or five hundred dollars a throw, you know. And also it takes up space. You know, it's not like a desktop with a computer. It, it, you need room for all this stuff, you know. I mean, but I, I, I've often, you know, I, when everyone else was, we, when everyone else was moving forward, I was racing backwards because I was trying to find out like, you know, what analog gear is really great and what can I find for cheap? And, you know, it's integrated because we have that with, you know, Pro Tools, of course. And what people do when they can afford it is they record everything to two-inch tape and then we dump it into Pro Tools and we lock the two together because admittedly, I mean, Pro Tools is easier to mix in than analog, you know, it just is, you know, right? unless you have like four or five people with their hands and feet on the board and everything. Um, and tubes sound better. Tubes just sound better. I had someone from Ampex, a guy who used to work for Ampex when I was learning all this, tell me the reason why tubes sound better as opposed to transistors. And he said, because like there's a glitch when the sine wave goes across the zero axis that, are, that existed in all transistors. And there's nothing they can do about it. I mean, they've gotten better and better at modeling it, but tubes don't do that. It's just... A flow. Also, I mean, I mean, also, um, when we bought our two-inch machine, we, we got tapes from the guy that um, we bought it from, and I, I worked with two-inch before, of course. I mean, but I hadn't really heard it in about a year and a half or two years at the time. And I listened to these tapes and I thought, why does it sound so warm? And it's the air. The air is not being quantized. The air is not being turned into ones and zeros. The air is like being mushed up, you know, and it sounds smooth and warm. And that's really what it is. Not so much the recording of the instruments that are being, and audio that are being recorded. It's like the air that's 
being recorded between the mic and the, and the amplifier or the person or whatever. Yeah, I mean, the instruments as well. I mean, as far as recording it in a physical studio and, and, and having that kind of space is also also helps. Oh, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> we're lucky to have a fairly large space, and then that's it, it, it definitely helps. I mean, and there's a lot of factors, especially if you live in New York City. It's like, you know, our building is unattached from anyone, so we don't have, like, you know, the police raiding us in the middle of the night. <laughs> you know, but with that, that can happen, you know. Yeah, so. When did it open? Um, that space has been there for a while. Um, 2017 was when I, when I moved to the space and I, I installed all my gear into the studio. It was a studio previously? It's an art, it's an art space, actually. The front of the building, if you could think of this, it's a kind of a long, um, wide rectangle. The front of the building is an art gallery, okay, that has art shows and a performance space. The middle part of the building is what we call um, the live room where I record bands, and there's a back section that's smaller where I have a control room and a vocal booth, okay? So it, it was never – I mean, they had recording gear there. They, you know, they had what you were talking about. They had, like, a computer and this and that, and um, I said, well, you know, I have all this stuff, including James Brown's um, um, re, um, plate, reverb plate that I recorded. Papa's got a brand-new bag on. How did you come across that? Okay. Um, story. Um, <clears throat> I had left my old studio, but when I left my old studio, I realized, you know, after I didn't have a mixing board and I, you know, didn't, and I needed to get one. So I was shopping around for one and I found one in Charlotte, North Carolina. And this guy who was kind of brokering stuff around town, he had that and he had James Brown, the plate that James Brown used to record Papa's got a brand new bag on. And he was, he was selling both of them. And I th- thought to myself, okay, so my wife and I, we, we flew down, rented a U-Haul, and saw the plate, and I thought, I mean, saw the, excuse me, saw the board, and I thought, well, this is much larger than I thought it was going to be, but we'll get it in there somehow. And then we went over and we got the plate, and that, too, was the size of a, of a queen-size bed. And I thought, I can't come down here without getting this plate. I mean, you know, it's, it's James Brown's plate. For, you know, it's like, so, and it, it sounds amazing. It sounds so much better than any of the modeling things, you know, that, that you hear, digital things, you hear the, the real actual plate. It's an amazing sound. You talked about the price of upkeep, but it sounds like this was a pretty huge investment up front. It's, it, it, it's, it's a bit, bit in pieces, you know. You, you know, you have like maybe so, somehow you happen to have an extra thousand dollars. Like it's a funny thing. Like the people told me when I first got into this, they go, "Oh, it's only a thousand dollars." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> it's like thousand dollars or a thousand dollars. But like you know, you have a, a little money here and there. I mean, and you buy it piece by piece. You know, I mean, I have these amp ampeg um, ampex um, mic pre's that are actually tape recorder mic pre's. I have like four of them, I think six, four. Um, and anyway. Um, when I first started buying them, they were $400. Now they're like $2,000. So you, you just find things and, um, you know, you, you don't, at least I can't afford to buy it all at once. Yeah. I mean, somebody says only $1,000, but you're a working musician living in New York City. Exactly. Exactly. So that when I, I mean, whenever they say that, I just go, yeah, well, maybe for you, but, you know, but I mean, but I've managed to acquire things over the, um, over the years. I mean, I, I sometimes, sometimes I think and I look at it and I go, you have a lot of stuff here, you know, but I mean, you really bought it piece by piece by piece over the, over the course of years, you know, that's how life is. You know, I'm looking around my like way too crowded apartment right now. And I'm just like, I don't know how, how I got this much stuff. It's, it's just, it's, you know, it's it's like death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. It's, you know, stuff is weird, you know, it, it, it really is. Cause it, 
I mean, if you like stuff that's, I mean, you try not to be a hoarder, but if it's, you know, useful for you, you go, well, sure, I, I need this or I want that, you know? I live in New York City as well. I'm, I'm in Astoria. Um, and you should have just met. We should meet at some point. I, you know, it's just this thing of like, I used to, I actually used to do all these in person. Like I went to Richard's uh, apartment that I think he's been living in for like decades at this point. I used to live there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause when I first joined the band, I was living on the Upper West Side and he goes, Oh, you got to come down to the village. And like I said, yeah, because the trek was a lot. And, um, his rent, I think, is now what it was then. I mean, he has a really sweetheart deal. So I used to do these in person, and then the pandemic happened, and I was like, oh, this is just so much easier. You definitely lose a little bit not being face-to-face and talking to people, but just being able to do this all remotely has is, is just been a million times easier. No, I prefer it, too. You know, I prefer it, too. Because, I mean, even now, there's, like, whatever, RCA, whatever this new thing is that's going around. It. You know, I mean, and I got Omicron after, like, being boosted like you know four three times you know so i yeah, yeah i i don't mind i've been really good and and masking up but then i started traveling for work and then i just i, I got it a couple times in quick succession yeah when i got it i, I knew exactly where i got it too i mean it's that's it's great it's kind of remember that situation you go ah it was there i know you've been dealing with some really major health issues over the years i, I want not, no no I want nothing to do with that you know i mean and I got to say, when I got this Omicron thing, it was reminiscent of that. It was really painful. It's like weird. But yeah, I mean, I, I can't afford to, you know, to do anything like that. You know, It's good. It's funny you ask. I'm seeing my oncologist tomorrow. I always tell people, you know, my health is great, you know, if I can stay away from the doctors. You know? <laughs> I feel good. I'm, I'm good. And, you know, she's like a really great doctor. And, um, um, you know, I take care of myself. Don't need any, any, I'm like, you know, corn syrup or any of that crap. So I think I'm okay. It's, it's just one of those things that you can take care of yourself, but you, especially when you've been through it a couple of times, you, you have to be really mindful and you have to be very vigilant about it. Yeah. Well, and then also I remember, you know, being diagnosed and I, I told the doctor, I said, I've done this and I've done that and I've done this and I've done that and I've done that. And, and I did this and I did that. And they go, well, that isn't how you got it. And we don't know how you got it. I'm like, like I smoked at some point, something like that. Well, yeah, and a lot of other things, you know. I mean, but they, you know, they're like, no, this isn't how you got this. Like, okay. How transformative? I mean, if at all, is is that an experience that once you go through it, that you sort of you reconsider the state of your life, your life, everybody else's life, the the fragility of things. I mean, you know, the um, everything. I mean, just how nothing is promised. I mean. And how you should spend whatever time you have here doing, you know, what you think you should be doing and, you know, keeping yourself, you know, and happy for lack of better terms. You know, it really does bring that. You're really on the brink of the edge and you go, okay, well, it's, uh, people ask me about this. And I, I remember thinking when I, when I was going through the, you know, treatment, the chemo and the radiation, which is worse than the, the disease, by the way. And I remember thinking like, God, you know, you've been such a jerk to everybody. Like, you know, you should have been nicer to people. Because you could be gone soon. And then, like, five minutes later, I was thinking, you let everybody push you around. You're such a fucking little wuss. <laughs> I mean, your mind goes through these things. And I, I've talked to other people about this that were isolated during COVID and had the same thoughts, you know? I mean, so, yeah, it is transformative. It, it, it really is. It's like in everything I do now, it's like, do I really need to do that? No, I'm not going to. But before it, like... Has to be done. Done. No. You've continually been making music for decades, but did it impact your 
desire to, you know, write and record your own stuff? Yeah. Well, I mean, my opinion has always been as long as I'm making music, I'm making music. It doesn't, I don't have to like be fronting a band or I think if I'm producing something, I'm making music. If I'm playing guitar on somebody's thing, I'm making music. But this um, made me realize that, okay, you should be writing and playing songs while the time you're here. You know, you, this is what you should be doing and you should just spend all of your time doing it, you know, or most of it, you know, and, you know, aside from the other stuff that pays, <laughs> you know, but that's what you should be doing. Yeah. I mean, because, and even, I mean, I remember this quote from Leonard Bernstein he's, and his son asked him like, do you have any regrets? And he goes, well, I wish I'd written more, you know, because he's this famous composer, you know, you know, do you know how you get the music for on the, on the waterfront? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was his it, first film. That was his first film. Yeah. Oh, wild. No, I didn't know that. So anyway, I mean, from someone like him, it's like, I mean, yeah, you realize that you should probably be, you know, writing or if that's what you do or, yeah, so it was transformative in a big way. Does it influence the lyrical content? No. Um, I, I can't, well, let me think about that. Uh, no, because I'm, I'm not writing about it, you know? I mean, I, I wrote kind of morbid <laughs> um, things before, <laughs> before, this, before this all happened. Um, I am working a song on a song called the the night, which kind of addresses this whole thing. But um, no, I can't say it, it changes it. You know, and the lyrics are about whatever it's, you know situation I'm singing about or talking about. Yeah, I mean, I ask specifically because on this new record, and I know you know, I I know press material can really kind of go either way in terms of accuracy, but it, it effectively says that it's set against the contemporary socio political stage. But also it's just that it's sort of a product of the, I guess, you know, the last several years. So obviously you're working through something on there. Well, yeah, I mean, but then again, a lot of these things, these thoughts um, um, came to me before COVID, before I was ill and all that. I mean, one of the songs was written years ago, the song, I'm Not a Drone Alone. Um, and, and it's kind of apocalyptic in a way. It's like kind of inspired by the movie Rollerball. It's a scene in Rollerball where they're like all these um, kind of, um, I can't say, um, it's people that, um, you know, uh, anyway, um, they're entitled. Okay, they're entitled. And they're on this ridge. And they're and one of their games is to take flare guns and shoot trees and kill them, you know? And this had such a strong impression on me, I don't know why. And that, and I was living up on, on East 3rd Street um, above a home, men's homeless shelter. And those two things made me write the song. And then I, and it was one of those things that had been in the can for years. And I just like, when I was making this album, I thought, okay, I'm going to finish this. And I'm going to make it happen. And it was pretty much bef- right before COVID. A lot of this written, record was written right before the lockdown, you know, because um, I was locked down then. You understand? Like, I, I mean, I, 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 you know, I couldn't really go anywhere or anything like that. And I just couldn't, muddle my way back and forth to the studio. Um, and then as soon as, as soon as I was ready to go, Hey guys, what's happening? The world shut down. <laughs> I, not nearly on this, the, the scale that you did, but I, I was dealing with some health problems um, early on in the pandemic. And, and it was, for me, it was um, the end of March, beginning of April. And, and yours came back March, 2020. Is that right? Just like right, right. As COVID was really hitting New York. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, the irony of, of everything sometimes. I mean, it's just, you know, it, after you've seen this 
cycle so much. It's like, okay, well, here comes this, this, this situation. Of course it's going to work out like this, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, but that, it was, it was, I mean, you let me hear as well. It was scary. It reminded me of like the plague, you know, it's like, I mean, bring out your dead and the bells ringing and stuff because like there were sirens all the time. It was, it was, it was a <clears throat> frightening situation. And when I tell people from other cities, I mean, so like, listen, we live on top of each other. Um, we're, we're, I mean, we're literally like crammed together in this space. So um, you, you're afraid that it might happen to you. A very vivid memory of, of mine from that time is the my office, which I don't go into anymore. But my office is on um, Broadway and Eighth, and I was seeing all these, you know, like all the Wire reporter photos, everything that was coming out of the city at the time, and there was. Um, Parked directly across the street from my office was one of those uh, Walmart Mack trucks with the Walmart logo, everything painted out, painted white, and it was a refrigerator truck, and they were just oh, holding bodies. Of course, of course, yeah. I mean, even I mean, when you know, we saw it on on the news, or whatever. It's it's still surreal. I mean, that you think that that kind of thing is happening in this day and age, you know, you think, okay, well, yeah, yeah, maybe during you know, like some kind of horrific event in the past or something this could have happened and you know we, we realize it but no, this happened this you know, kind of sprang up on us like that in the present like today you know for you as a professional musician um what what, what did you do during those i guess two years it was we- weird actually i got a lot of work from overseas mastering people's records from europe and from south america i worked on this record you know i mean uh, and that's basically what what I did. I, I couldn't perform anywhere, and and I mean, I, I, I unfortunately wasn't one of those people that got it together to like you know have the performance come out of their house and all that. But no, I'm just gonna. I haven't finished this record yet. I'm just gonna finish the record, and that's what I did. And I, and I got mastering work, and um, that's pretty much um, how I how I you know got through that. You know, one thing that really helped me realize that you know I'd always taken for granted, and a lot of people took for granted. Is how much we need other people to do our work. You know, I mean, you need a room full of people to perform to, and you just kind of took for granted they'd always be there, blah, blah, blah. But, like, you know, without that, then you can't play. There's no performance. You know, there's no, there's no place to, you know, actually, you know, do a live performance. And it's something that at least I had completely taken for granted, you know, before this, you know. It's not, obviously, it's not this way for everything, everyone, but for most people, that's. That's kind of the point of making music is so that people hear it. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, unless you're a painter, it's, it's, I mean, even they, I, I imagine, you know, have to have someone, someone else involved, but unless you're a painter, you need other people to do it, you know? I mean, and to play the music with you as well. Did you move to the city specifically to pursue music? Yeah, because I moved here from, um, well, actually from Croatia, but I mean, technically England. That's why I came here because... I'd heard of this kind of thing happening here, this kind of movement. Even over in, in Croatia, I heard about it. You know, like I would read Melody Maker, one of those mags, and like there was something sparking in New York, and I wanted to write. I wanted to be in a band that wrote music and played original music, so that's why I moved here, yeah. Looking at the timeline, it seems like things happen incredibly fast for you. I mean, with, within a year, if not less, you were playing with the Voidoids. It was like two months. You know, I mean, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, what can I say? I mean, I'd been on the road with the foundations for a better part of a year. I moved here to play music, and I put an ad in the paper that said, like, you know, 
have gear, we'll travel. This was the voice, right? Uh, it, it was actually a paper called The Musicians Classified. It doesn't exist anymore. That used to come out, um, I think they were based on 30th Street but, uh, on the music street. And Richard responded? And Well, it's odd because I, I came back from Europe, okay? Um, I put this ad in the paper, and I was staying with a friend on the Upper West Side, as I said. Put this ad in the paper, went down and saw my folks, you know, and then came back. And because it took like a month or so for the paper, you know, to print the ad and to, for the new issue to come out. There was an article about Richard on the front of this of this um, paper written by Anya Phillips with a big picture of him. And my ad was on the back page in the classified. So they called me. They, they were looking through it. I mean, and Klein was kind of the one that was like kind of orchestrating the whole thing. Uh, called me up and I came down and auditioned and, and that was that, you know. You said that you had kind of read or heard about this, this scene that was coming to, together in the city. But how familiar were you actually with the music? Not, not, none at all. I mean, to me, it was just rock and roll. And I mean, and, um, you know, it, I remember Lenny Kay wrote for a magazine called Rock Scene. And even before when I was living in, you know, um, in, in Maryland, I mean, we would get Rock Scene and look at all these weird things that were happening up there and people hanging out in clubs and, you know, and all that. that that's as familiar as I was with it, with anything. I hadn't heard anything. I'd heard, um, the dolls and who else? And that was that was about it because the dolls were did some TV appearances, you know. But as far as what, what was really brewing with like Patty and Richard and television and the Tough Darts and all these other bands, countless bands, you can't name the Talking Heads yet because they weren't part of the scene in the, in the beginning, you know. It clicked pretty quickly with the group. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like. They had great, to me, they had three, they had three songs at the time. Um, Blank Generation, Love Comes in Spurts, and You Gotta, and you gotta Lose. That's a pretty good trio of songs to, to start with. Yeah, but I mean, they weren't really finished, and they said, okay, well, we have this, can you play that? And I, and I just did, you know? I mean, I just played, you know, whatever parts. And what really attracted me to the band was um, Richard's bass playing, because, I, I, I mean, his bass playing is really unique. People criticize him for it, but I thought it was great. You know, especially this baseline on You Gotta Lose is like brilliant, you know? Verlaine was out of the group already by the time you came along? They had complete, completely parted. I mean, I had no idea that Tom Verlaine and Richard even knew each other, you know? I mean, this was just Quine, Quine um, Richard, and Mark Bell or Marky Ramon at the time. So that, that whole scene had taken place before I even got to town, you know, with um, the Neon Boys and, and all that. I'm fascinated having just found out today that you were a touring member of the foundations how, how how did that come about once again i saved all my money i worked in a law firm in downtown dc a corporate law firm as a paralegal i don't, I don't know how i got that gig it, this is all i mean i don't know i mean and anyway i saved every dime i had i mean i sometimes slept on people's couches so i could because i wanted to go to england you know i saved the money i went there and um, then um, I put all ads in the papers once again. Nothing really panned out. I mean, it's very kind of secular. Like, you know, it's like, you know, I wasn't from the Mercy River or, or something like that and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then I met these people um, at the Town and Country Pub one night. And they said, okay, we're going to come pick you up tomorrow morning. We're going to take you to this rehearsal studio called Manny's Rehearsal Studio. Okay. And you, and 
then you go there and you'll meet Manny and he'll help you find a band. So I met this guy, Manny, and he was really great and sweet. And he goes, okay, you sit here at the front desk and um, a band will come through and he'll need a guitar player. So I sat there for like, I don't know, a week or so. And then during that time sitting there, that's where I met Topper Hooden, you know, um, from, from the class because he was playing with Gary Moore. So, yeah, I mean, and um, I, I bought him scones every day to pay my rent or something. Because I know he wasn't the, the original drummer. Was he even, was he in the band at that point? No, he was, like I said, he's playing this guy. His name is Gary Moore, um, who was a, a blues guitar player. And they were rehearsing to go out on tour. So this, this was a place where it's kind of like at the SIR, the you know, studio instrument rental, you know, like a rehearsal space of, of London at the time, and, but on a much smaller scale. I mean, you know, it wasn't as dressed up or anything. But, um, yeah, so he was, he was doing that. So we, we started up a conversation, and, you know, we, we, just, we, we would talk and everything. Um, but, yeah, and so the foundations came in, and they fired their guitar player. And... Um, or the, or the guitar, guitar player probably quit because these guys worked so much. I mean, you talk about eight days a week. I mean, they were literally on the road all the time, like sometimes two, two, two gigs in two different cities, you know. And um, so they needed a guitar player. So I went in and played, and they seemed to like what I do. And then like three days later after learning the songs, off we go. I assume that at that point you were familiar with the foundations. I mean, they were, they were a pretty big deal for a while. No, it wasn't. Remember, Mike, my, my, I mean, regardless of what you might have read, like, my, my real heroes were like, you know, John Lee Hooker, you know, uh, uh, Howlin' Wolf, Keith Richards, you know. That's what, I mean, that's who I was studying to, to learn, learn the guitar. Of course, I heard Top 40 Radio, and I, I heard that Build Me Up Buttercup. But I, I, was, I was 11 at the time, and I really thought they were from Detroit. Yeah, they sound like an American soul band. I- yeah, yeah, and they did it really well, yeah. It sounds like you're sort of ultimately fairly agnostic to to the genre that you're playing. I mean, I, and I and I say this because again, like you know, I mentioned Richard, and then the other the other folks that I have had on the show that you have been in groups with are Dave Allen, Cynthia Slay, and Matthew Sweet. And that's oh. all over the board, especially the band that you were in with Cynthia was sort of um, like African influenced. Really, <laughs> I think Dave Allen was more African influenced than we were, but I, I mean. Um, yeah, there, well, actually, I mean, I'm thinking back to that record, we did use a lot of kind of like, you know, um, uh, African percussion and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, to, I mean, to, 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 to take to your point, I mean, I had previously been hanging out with Giorgio Gomelsky. You should really know Giorgio Gomelsky. I mean, he's not around anymore. Giorgio Gomelsky was the original manager for the Yardbirds. He managed the Stones for a short time. And he was living in New York City um, on 24th Street. Um, and I hung out with him a lot. And he turned me on to Fela Kuti and all this, like, great African acts, you know, that he was really into. And um, th- I, th- I took part of that probably to that band. It's interesting, re- you know, reading up how influenced you were by Hendrix early on, because I, I, I still hear that in your voice. I'm not, believe me, I'm not trying. I, I'm, I'm so far away from emulating him because he's just someone to me is like, that's, like I said, it was the first concert I saw. My friend's older brother, I didn't say that to you, but like my friend's older brother took me there when I was like 13 years old, you know? Um, and it just blew my mind. Actually, I just try to get by with singing. <laughs> it might be subconscious, but you know, at least, uh, one of the songs I was listening to, I was like, yeah, there's, there's some, there's a little bit of that. People have compared my playing. 
Um, especially when I was with Matthew, because I mean, Matthew g- gave me like this kind of um, this um, open space, um, this venue, I'll call it, where I could just play whatever I wanted and have fun, you know. And when and it wasn't until like people started writing that I thought, well, let me listen to some Hendrix. I haven't listened to Hendrix in like you know two decades or three decades. And one thing I got from his playing is that he just has fun. It's like the things he's doing, especially while he's soloing, he's just like, it's, it's not overly thought. It's just, you know, visceral, you know? So, I mean, that's that, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> you scared me. <laughs> no, I, listen, there are worse things in the world than being compared well, to Hendrix. True. There are always worse things in the world, yeah. <laughs> I think when we first start doing the thing that we want to do, we're we're imitating in a lot of cases i know that you like and i hope this is, this is a right fact but i i think you were in a, a led zeppelin cover bands at one point oh yeah yeah because uh, yeah when we start our creative pursuits we, we're we're imitating and then we find our own voices but i think for a lot of people in a lot of cases you, you can't you still can't shake those really uh foundational influences I'll agree with you, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because I mean a lot of I mean uh, almost I think almost everybody's heroes are derivative of something, you know. They, 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 the heroes themselves were, you know. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love Keith Richards because he turned America onto its culture that it never heard or seen, you know, or seen before, and he 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 still can't shake that, you know. He's, he's still doing Chuck Berry riffs or whatever I mean, to some degree, you know. He does all right for himself. Well, yeah. <laughs> you travel a lot early on. You were um, your father was in the Navy. I, I know you're initially from D.C., but you were in what Haiti and Cuba at various points. Um, Haiti for a second. I mean, I think I, I, I can't remember why I was very young. Why we were there and how long we were there. But Cuba, I lived until my formative years in, Guant- in Guantanamo. Until um, know, it was like about eleven, I think, when we got back from five, ages five to eleven. What was that experience like being on that base for so long? Well, I mean, I'm sure there's other people like that, that you know, Navy or Army brats that have the same experience. It's it's isolating. I mean, but it depends on what age group you're in. I mean, I, I heard stories of teenagers there, people that like were like fifteen or sixteen that were where it was absolutely hell for them because there was one radio station that was government controlled. I mean, uh, the one song I remember hearing was "On Top of Old Smokey" by Burl Ives. You you would not hear any rock and roll, and also you were far enough away from the states where, like, you know, it couldn't be piped in. Um, but I was I was I was a child, so for me it was paradise. You know, like blue waters, blue skies, fishing. Yeah, I I, I loved it. Yeah, I, I really did. I mean, I mean, I was there during the missile crisis as well. Or at least I we got evacuated during that time. And it, and that made me realize that um, it, you know, it, it wasn't all, all so um, you know, hunky dory or as I as I thought it was because the world was in crisis, you know. Especially when I moved back here, I, that was when I moved back here. It, that was a very that was a huge culture culture shock. You know, I mean, just speaking America was in like 1962, You know, at least in some ways, probably in a good way. I mean, in terms of, I guess, was it moving back to D.C.? Is that where you heard rock and roll for the first time when we, when we moved back, we moved back for good, you know, in, in like 1965, you know, we moved back for good. That, that's when I, 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 I discovered AM radio, I discovered the Trogs, you know, I just discovered, you know, all the, all the, all these kind of great, like, um, 
um, singles bands that were that were making records at the time. You know, the Beatles, the Stones. I mean, the Kinks. I mean, um, Motown. All this stuff, and all this stuff was being played on one radio station as well. That's a, that was a great thing. I mean, is that like? I mean, you know, you you would hear like you know satisfaction, and then you would hear um, you know reach out and I'll be there, and you hear the Supremes, and then you'd hear it's like all this great stuff. It's it's amazing, and I, and I've always loved music. I mean. Um, but it, it really caught me as something that I really wanted to be very much a part of, you know? Um, yeah. And, and I actually, and I, thinking about it, I, I was lucky enough to live in a city that had great radio stations, because not all did, and not all do. Did you grow up in New York? I grew up uh, in, the, in the Bay Area, so there were pretty good radio stations out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New York, I, I, what surprised me the first time I came here was the radio stations were pretty much awful because of the, and it's been explained to me because of the demographic that they have to please such a large demographic that like, it was just also saccharine and like, I mean, there's nothing, as we drove, you know, because my, my friends and I, we would drive up, um, do you know Ted Nicely? He produced um, Fugazi, you know, anyway, we grew up together as, as kids and as long with, along with, along with HR and I, like HR from, and I and Bad we all went to the same high school. <laughs> it is wild. It is wild. They would have been a maybe a little younger than you, right? No, Ted's older than me. HR though. HR is, is younger. HR is younger because um, yeah, he. I think he was a junior when I was. I was like a um, yeah. He he was a sophomore when I was a junior, and Ted was a senior. Like like that, you know. Um, but anyway, we would decide. One day, I don't know how, because all my friends were, were older at the time. When we get in the car, we would drive up to New York, and we would touch the Fillmore East, and we'd drive back in time for class the next day. Touch the Fillmore East? Like, just walk up to the building and physically touch it? Because by the time we got here, it was like 11 at night. We were, we were all too young to get in, you know? I mean, so, I mean, or, or at least maybe even 12 or 1 at night. So, yeah, we'd, come, we'd go up and we'd just touch it, and then we would drive back down. But one thing where I'm going with this is like the radio stations, when we got to Philly, they were great. And then after that, they got progressively worse as we got to New York City. And I'm like, where's the radio? Where's, you know, where's the music? And it was like, you know, awful. But that changed over the years too. There's been some, there's been some good stations here since then. Now it's kind of a moot point. It almost feels like, I mean, you know, just, just nobody, nobody really listens to the radio anymore. And it's all consolidated and corporatized. Yeah, and- exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't. <laughs> when I walk into stores and I have it on, I'm like, please. <laughs> Did you say you were in Croatia at one point? Yes. Yugoslavia at the time. And, 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 and what's that? Um, yeah. Uh, there in Serbia. Um, because what happened is like the foundations went to, um, Yugoslavia to do a tour and we toured all over and then that's when I realized that like I can't be with these guys because they're not they're not writing you know they're, they're they've had their hits they're you know they're just they were on the downslope by the time you got well, there yeah it, 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 maybe so yeah I mean kind of like the people who play Vegas you can't say they're on a downslope you know they're just like making their money and you know well they're on the downslope from their from the peak obviously exactly. yeah yeah most definitely yeah yeah because this was like 10 years later at the time that there was something and, and once again I was young I mean thinking of it I was like only 20 years old or something kind of crazy um but 
Um, and I wanted to write. You know, I wanted to be in a band that actually made music. So I stayed in Yugoslavia with the band that opened for us called Parnevaljak, which is means steamroller. And they, you know, we talked and they, they loved, you know, a lot of the same music. So Foundations went back to England. I stayed there and I did another leg of the tour with a guest guitarist as them, with them, excuse me. And then um, I, after that tour was over, came to, came to New York. That's a big decision to just to just stick around with the bands in a new country where I assume that you don't speak the language. Well, it, it was odd. It's talking about the language. I, I I learned the language to some degree. I can speak a bit of it to, today, a tiny bit. But it was the first la- language that I heard that wasn't Latin based. It wasn't like French or Spanish. It was completely different, you know. So I had, I mean, I had to function. I had to learn how to, you know ask for a glass of water, you know, go to the bathroom, blah, 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 you know, where's the key to my hotel, these kind of things. I mean, so, I mean, I, I, it, I, I learned it. I learned it. And, I mean, I, I still have friends there, and, and I, I had a really great time there. You know? I thought it was really a huge crime. But they told me, you know, um, there was a, um, a leader, I guess, you got prime minister or something you call him, um, his name was Tito. They got him through the, um, the Second World War, and they told me when Tito dies – He's the only Yugoslavian, and the country's going to just completely split up, and that's exactly what happened. What made you stay with them? Um, because I, I felt like I had to like just kind of take a respite and and ha- have a perch before I moved to New York. You know, I, I felt like okay, and these guys were playing. You know, I mean, music, and they asked me to come on the tour. It's not like I asked them; they asked me. And I thought, yeah, this give me this, this will give me a month or so to kind of sort myself out, get my stuff out of England. Um, and then, and then moved to, moved to New York. New York was always on the horizon for you. No, not until this, at this point in my life. Because, like I said, I started hearing things about, I actually, when you asked me that, it's like, um, I, like I said, I worked for the law firm, you know, to save money to get out. And, um, they would send me, um, here to do research, to deliver huge tech checks and things like that on the, on the shuttle. And I would, you know, come here. And rather than use the money for a hotel, I would just kind of wander around the city all night because <laughs> this is stupid. And but then again, or I'd go to Max's. I mean, because then there, you know, there was no drinking ages, whatever. And no one cared about that kind of thing. And I would see like people I'd seen on TV, like Johnny Thunders and and, and um, these people, freezing cold outside without a coat or a guitar case. And I decided then I'm never moving there. <laughs> It's too rough, man. It's these people. I, I can't do that. So, I mean, yeah, but I mean, that, that changed over the years. But then it wasn't until I, I thought it was an inner voice. You know, that's all, the best way I can describe it. That said, you have to go there and you have to play guitar there. At least try, you know. I mean, because you're not going back to D.C. That, that was never on the cards. I was never going to um, end up back there because there was no creative outlet for me except to play in cover bands of some sort, some sort you know. It's, yeah, that wasn't. I mean, it's interesting that, that you saw Johnny Thunders at, at Maxis before the specific scene that you joined. Like you, you had gotten glimpses of what was going to become punk. Yeah, I even went there. I mean, there I went to Club Eighty Two, which is like um, I think it was a a, a, trans, a transvestite bar at the time, and I saw Wayne Jane Wayne County or Jane County at the time. Jane County, yeah, 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 and um. And then I think the heartbreak, I mean, not the heartbreaks, but the dolls played there. And, that, and that's, that's why I saw them. I, I got glimpses. I, I mean, and even on the way to the airport, when I moved to England, 
um, my friend says, oh, we're going to stop by CBGB's. And we want to see this, this band of brothers called the Ramones. Okay. And it, we'll do that right. And you'll be able to catch your flight. So we went there. It was Tuesday at four o'clock. I mean, he thought, and maybe I agreed, that they would just be playing all the time at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday. I don't know. But of course, no one was there on Tuesday afternoon. But I got little glimpses, but they didn't really register, you know? Yeah, it's so funny because I, in a lot of ways, dramatically different, but in some ways, similar experience of, of moving to New York and CBGBs was still around at the time and really having heard about it, but it was so past its prime by the time I moved here in the, uh, I guess in like the mid to late aughts, um, that it was just, it, 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 you read about something, you hear about something for a long time and then you go and experience it. And obviously like, it's not going to be anything like you imagined it would be. Well, true. Same thing as when, when I would move to London and I went to the Marquis Club, you know, that was famous for like, you know, the who and everything, the stones and everyone playing. And it was, Pretty much like CDs was when you, you know, when you went there. It's kind of this, 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 you know, empty kind of, you know, room, dusty room with nobody in it. It was one, it was interesting when the, um, when all the sort of like, say, CBGB's part, uh, events were happening because it was like, yeah, this is just nobody has paid attention or cared to, about this place for so long. Now everybody wants to save it, but like, even if they did save it, there's no way it's going back to what it was. Yeah, even, I mean, after that, I mean, after the bands that were there that, I mean, that performed there and Hilly Lett performed there that couldn't play anywhere else, including the Warroids, you know, and Richard, um, even after that, after it reached its peak, it was just, I mean, it was done, you know? It was, I mean, it, 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 was, it was done. I, I, but I, except for one exception, I, I do remember it was in the 80s, like early 80s sometimes, and I, I walked by there because I lived very close to there at the time, and Vernon Reed was playing. Living Color was playing. They kind of brought the place back to life for a while, you know, because, I mean, it was, it was packed. It was the same thing with the, you know, police lines outside and everything. Speaking of, I guess, how uh, everything around Richard's apartment changed, and, you know, you mentioned living on 3rd Street, and, you know, even even when I moved out here, Bowery was still pretty pretty rough, you know, but obviously a lot of that's changed. The, the city has just changed dramatically. In a lot of cases, not for the better. What's kept you here for so long? Oh, God, that's a good question. I, I ask myself that all the time, especially this time of year. <laughs> yeah. Especially during the pandemic, I was just like, I don't, I'm not leaving my apartment. I don't know why I'm paying this much for rent and never leave my apartment. Well, I have ties here now. I mean, I mean, I do, I do somehow still like it, you know, and, and especially when I go back to the East Village, I, I, there's something about it I, I, I like. I, I like, um, that the, the things that, that kind of happen, I, I don't know, the, the vibrance that's on the street, the immediacy that's on the street, the, you know, the, the, the catalyst that's on the street. I, 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 like, I like all that. I mean, and I find if I go away from it, I miss it. I, if I, I was just in Chicago last month and I thought, this is great. And I love Chicago. It's like my second home. But like, I don't know, there's some kind of, you know, spark that um, happens here that I really like. To answer your question, Beyond that, I, I can't answer that. I, just, I got nowhere else to go. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of, of the Caribbean. I, mean, I, would, I would love to live down there. I mean, because it's warm and it's beautiful, and I, I, I grew up down there. But, um, you know, uh, I'm not in a situation where I can, you know, do anything down there. Certainly there are 
perks to being here that you don't get in other places. Like you just played with Richard Lloyd, which is not something you can do elsewhere. I mean, there are, there there are opportunities and experiences and you know things that you can do in music that you might not be able to do in another place. Yeah, yeah, and I have a studio here. I mean, and my son's here. I mean, you know, it's like there's a, so. Which is some of the time. I don't know. He just got back from Australia. He's he, he's kind of here, um, but I don't know. It's like, why does anybody? Why do people live in Cleveland? You know, why does anybody live anywhere? I mean, you know, that this. I mean, and I agree with you. It, 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 I, it, I put it this way: I'm not in love with um, what was because I don't think like that anyway. Because what was isn't here anymore. So it has completely changed, and especially when you get down to the Bowery and there's a Whole Foods and. All that. I mean, it's like um, it's you know. But I also realized that when I first moved here, because I remember I was sitting in a park um, near the museum, and I was just sat down. I mean, I'd been traveling all over the world and sat down and kind of relaxed. And all of a sudden, like three or four people come up and start like this bothering me. And it taught me this lesson: like in New York, if you sit still too long, you know, it's a bad thing. <laughs> it's like, you know, you got to keep moving. Everything keeps moving. So you sit still, someone will run over you or try to run over yourself. <laughs> 